We're continuing tonight with our series, Questions on Prayer. Let me show you where we were last week. What we did last week was we started the series off, as we always do, justifying why we're going to spend any of God's time on this series. So we spent some time talking about why do a series on prayer, some of the reasons we're going to do it. We also looked at your questions about prayer. Remember, we've received about 75 questions from you that you've asked about prayer. We read those aloud and talked about the ones we might go through. We also read questions from other Christians that I've seen in books that are very good questions about prayer and almost more importantly to me, we read questions that came from former Christians who left the faith because they never got their questions answered and they just thought that their questions about prayer, among other things probably, were insurmountable, that nobody could answer them. So the whole thing was in their mind not worth it. They chucked their faith and walked out. And while some of us in this room, in fact most of us, we have the same questions. We just haven't walked out. So it's good for us to answer some of these questions to the best we can, not just because we want the answers. I think that's good. It might be preventing us from having a vibrant prayer life, although I said that might sometimes be an excuse as well. But these are honest questions that come from our heart that I want to answer. But more importantly, they're honest questions that come from the heart of other people who didn't get an answer, and they left. And that's just too bad. Here's something else we did last week. We looked at some of the lessons from our last series on prayer, which we're trying not to duplicate, that was one that wrestled with some similar issues, and then we use the Lord's Prayer as a model and walk through it week by week. So that one's on our website, on our podcast site. You can check that out. And finally, we spent the second half of last week dealing with what we call Jesus' unanswered prayers. And I want to kind of pick up right there where we left off just to summarize the point on Jesus' quote-unquote unanswered prayers. And that was something that Philip Yancey had put in his book in an article that he had written. Basically, the point I want to get out of that is Jesus, of course, has a lot of features that we don't have. And in many cases, it seemed like Jesus even knew what was about to happen, and yet he still prayed. Jesus had miraculous powers at his disposal. He said that, and yet he still prayed. So for a lot of us, I just want to point that out, that there were times when he could have acted, but he prayed instead. There were times we looked at where it seemed, at least in the short term, that his prayer didn't come out the way he prayed it. I mean, that prayer didn't get answered the way he prayed it. But of course, we can look back. Thankfully, we have scripture to see that things ended up in ways that were probably exactly the way they're supposed to be. That's kind of where we left off, struggling with this strange issue of when does God act? When does he not? Free will? Jesus praying? Why did he pray? And we kind of left it there in some tension on purpose and said to be continued. And I'm actually going to leave it hanging a little bit longer. Here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to start with these questions. Does prayer change God's mind? Probably the most asked question we got back. A number of you put it down, and so we put down little hash marks to see how many times we got it. Here's another question. Why pray if God already knows all of your needs? That was probably the other real big question that we got constantly. So I figured rather than ask this, you know, do the simple ones, Let's just go for the hardest one, and that way if we just grind to a halt, we've at least put up something and we made a valiant effort. By the way, let me uh, put an asterisk next to the word answers. I think tonight we're going to give some observations. It would be awfully arrogant of us to think that what the church has been struggling with and what thinkers have been struggling with for hundreds of years, we're somehow going to answer tonight definitively. I think what we're going to do is put up the best observations we can from one perspective, which is, if this is preventing you from praying, then we want to find out what the observations might be that might get you at least past it if we can't definitively answer it. Does prayer change God's mind? 
How many people think prayer changes God's mind? Raise your hand. One, two. How many people think prayer does not change God's mind? Is that why you guys don't pray? Is that the reason? Is that it? Because you just figure what's the point? Because that is really the reason we're starting with this question. Let me just throw out some observations and some verses. Here's the answer. The answer is prayer does not change God's mind. Let me tell you where I get that from. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? There's another verse. 1 Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. One more. Malachi 3, 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Does that answer it? Uh, what do you do with you know, Moses changing God's mind? Are you disagreeing with me? <laughs> there are difficulties in the sense that you have this interaction with Moses and, and God where at least he seems to have done something. I mean, the, there's a difficulty with the word because it says, you know, God relented. Or, or even repented in some translations. And so there's issues with what is exactly does that mean. But many translations say he changed his mind. Okay, yeah. Maybe God doesn't really change his mind. But he feels he knows better than you. But he'll give you a shot. Okay. I think that might work in some instances, but not in others. For example, if he says, I'm going to kill them. And then you say, no, don't do that. And he goes, okay, I'm still going to kill them, but I won't do that. Like, that won't work in that case. Which is, by the way, I'm not making that as a facetious example. The thing that Morgan just referenced was Moses arguing with God about not destroying the Israelites. Okay, how about if I go a step further? Since I don't think the answer is this clear. You should have known if I had said we'd come to an answer. You guys should know me better than that. Look at these verses carefully before they go off the screen. So you got some verses that say that the Lord does not change. By the way, I also look look at them carefully, because in the context, and I'm pulling them out of context, but in the context of these verses, most of them seem to deal with God saying that my promises don't change, especially like this one down here. I'm going to protect Israel because my promises don't change. I, the Lord, do not change. I will still protect you, is what Malachi is about. But just keep those in mind, because here's some verses that say the other way. Same Bible, Hosea 11, 8. My heart, being the Lord speaking, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Jeremiah 26, 13. Now therefore amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he has pronounced against you. One more. Amos 7, 6. The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. On the second verse, isn't that more where they're getting destroyed? Israel? You're talking about the verse in Jeremiah? Yeah. In context, what's happening there is Jeremiah is delivering a prophecy. And he's warning them that if you don't turn around, bad things are going to happen. But he's saying, if you amend your ways and obey the voice of of the Lord your God, right? Then the Lord will change his mind. Yeah. Um, this is my perspective, and I guess it, it comes out with the assumption that 
um, God's will isn't necessarily like completely specific, and that there are possibly like multiple jobs I could do still to God's glory. And like I pray for like one of those specific ones, like they'll get this job or like this particular thing will work out. Like I think that could um, kind of like sway God's toward that because like His will will be worked out, whatever happens. But I think that most people who struggle with this are not struggling with, does God have one will for my life? They're struggling with, God has said one thing, can we pray against it? Or even if we don't know what it is, would it make any difference? Because if he's already not going to change his mind, why even participate in the exercise? And what I want to point out is, a lot of times in this debate, I've heard people cite one verse or cite another verse. The fact that there's verses on both sides, and this is not an exhaustive list, by the way. There are other verses on both sides. So what's going on? How about if we just chuck the Bible then? That's, that seems kind of strange. Yeah. Uh, I remember we were looking at this actually in one of my classes, that in this 1 Samuel 15, like before that, in verse 10 it's, uh, or 11, it says that the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Um, and the, that in itself was just kind of contention within the, the own chapter where he regrets, which would imply changing the mind. And then it goes on to say he doesn't change his mind. And what's troubling about regretting, I mean, this whole, by the way, it, you're right to point that out. This first Samuel part is about the whole thing that's going on where, where, where Saul is begging to be restored back to God. And Samuel is saying, it's just not going to happen for you. And that whole part that we see God's sovereignty, and like you said, there's this word regret that comes out. I mean, when I read that, and I read through that, I thought to myself, is it possible that God didn't know that Saul was going to be a bad king? I mean, that comes close to what Morgan's talking about, like new theological ideas that like God's sitting in heaven going, I wonder what's going to happen next. Like, I'm totally stressed out about this. Like, that's kind of nutty. I don't think most of us believe that. Maybe some of you do that God doesn't know what's going to happen next. I think most of us are actually, if we're anywhere on one extreme or the other, probably at the other extreme. So those are strange words, but they are laid pretty close to one another. At a minimum, what we have is on one side, you have verses that says God does not change his mind. And on the other slide, we have verses that say God does change his mind. Let's look at some examples. God changed his mind in these situations. Abraham praying over Sodom. Do you remember that they were negotiating? God's like, I'm going to blot out the whole city. Abraham's like, well, wait a minute. What if you found 50? Okay, I'll, I won't for 50's sake. What if there were like 35 righteous people? 20, 10. They're having a discussion, a negotiation. Finally, God says 10. Maybe God's smiling because he knows Abraham's not going to find them. What about Moses, the one that Morgan mentioned? Moses pleading with, for the sake of the Israelites. God's like, I'm just going to wipe them out and start over. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Let's just start a brand new nation with you because these people are no good. I did all these miraculous things. I bring them over here. The first thing that happens, they're worshiping idols right in front of me. I'm just going to destroy them. God relents. Yeah. But doesn't he already make the promise way back with uh, the forefathers? You'd have many nations out of that? Like he says to Moses, I'm going to kill them off. So is God lying? I mean, because that's your other alternative. It's like, okay, God's lying. It's maybe testing is a good word, Scott. I mean, the, the idea, like, if you're going to use the God lying thing, which we've discussed before, that would be also like saying to Abraham, go and sacrifice your son. This is what I want you to do. And at the last minute, go, ah, just kidding, right? 
Is that a lie? Is that a test? I mean, we'd like to say test because it sounds better for us, right? I mean, I don't think most of us are going to sing any praise songs where we go, God, the lie. You know, we're not going to sing that, right? I can't even say it out loud. I'll be struck down right here in front of you. <laughs> like, well, that would be one of those things where we like the word test. We like those things. And maybe that is what God is doing. Somebody else would use the word wrestle. Like, maybe he's wrestling, like with Abraham. Maybe he's negotiating. Maybe he's really trying to see how far Abraham would go. Let me go through a couple more of these then. Jeremiah was ordered by God to stop praying. And the reason given to him was, stop praying because I might change my mind. That's a strange one. To say, hey, your constant prayers to me are a reason that that I may change my mind. I'm telling you, don't pray for this anymore because I've made up my mind. Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says, and this is the one that everybody always cites about God changing his mind, right? He goes to Hezekiah and says, hey, you're going to die. The Lord told me, I'm supposed to come and tell you that you're going to die. But before he even leaves the palace, Hezekiah is given another 15 years. Even God saying to Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell him I'm going to destroy him. They repent. God relents. I don't think God doesn't know those things are going to happen. That's not my view. But is his action conditional in some way on our action? Is there something more going on here in prayer? Like, is it a partnership of some kind? Do we dare even think that way? Here's some where God doesn't change his mind. Moses, who was able to convince God not to destroy the entire nation, was not able to to convince the Lord to let him enter the promised land. You remember Moses got mad and he smacked the rock with the rod and the water came gushing out? And God said, because you did this when I asked you to touch the rock, You stole the glory for yourself, and for this reason, you're going to die. You will not enter the promised land. He never changed his mind on that one, even though Moses pled to go into the promised land. Saul, again, we looked at that one with Samuel. I mean, Saul is pleading with Samuel, please let the Lord's favor return to me. He doesn't do that. David is a great example, because we often pray for people who are ill. David did a bad thing with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet comes up to him and says, because you have done this thing, the child will be struck dead or struck ill and then die. David pled before the Lord night and day, praying for the child, repenting, realizing his sin. Nathan even said, because you realize your sin, you will not die. And David begged the Lord to spare the life of the child, but the child died. Jesus in the garden, we talked about that last week. And finally, even Paul, we see him struggling with, Lord, remove this thorn from my side. We know that it goes on to say why this is greater that he doesn't, but in the end, the thing that we do is Paul is asking for something that is not happening. God is not relenting on that one. We have both models simultaneously. So that's why I'm saying tonight, are we going to get answers or observations? Because we have them on both sides. Yeah, Jeremy. I don't even know how you could know whether or not you change God's mind. I don't know what difference it would make. Honestly, like, because you can't know that. I, I, I just don't know how you can answer that, honestly. Okay, sorry. Um, I don't know if you can answer it, but I think it, I think it makes a difference because a lot of people pray like it doesn't really matter. And, well, I think especially, like, in history, like, there really are people that, like, prayed like it mattered. And whether like it mattered means it changes God's mind, but it would seem that it might have elements of that. And, but maybe along the line of Jeremy's thought is the fact that we don't know 
should encourage us to pray as if it did matter. Because I remember when I did speak about prayer, it was in the Bible, the people who prayed seemed to pray as if it could do something. And I still stand by that. Like I think that's a good observation from, from what I see in the scriptures. And so I think Jeremy's dead right. We can't know, but maybe there's a positive thought behind that instead of, oh great, we can't know, so then let's not do it. Maybe it's we can't know and this might do something. Who knows? Okay, Philip? I feel like one that creates bigger issues as well, which is like, well, if God says some things and we can trust on some of them and not trust on others, like how do we know which ones will actually happen? Like, can we just pray hard enough and like not have like Jesus come back? Or like pray hard enough and have him come back now? Or like can we just change all of his promises because we pray hard? But like, I feel like, so there's some issue where, even though I agree right now, like, I can't know what God's mind is. And so for me, like, I can't know whether I'm changing his mind anyway. I wouldn't know unless he speaks to me and tells me directly, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'll pray. And then Let me stop on your point because I want to be very careful with our language. You're right, and you said it, and I want to highlight it. We cannot know if we have changed God's mind because we don't know God's mind. Okay. I totally agree with that. And don't hear me saying that we will know if. The only question we're asking is, can it change at all whether we know it or not? Because some of us have grown up, and most of you by your vote said that we could not change his mind. That means that when you come to prayer, you are doing what Soren's thinking about, which is what's the point? If he's going to do what he's going to do, and he's not going to change, there's no point in me praying. And what I'm trying to point out is, We will never know God's mind, but we do know that in Scripture he says, I won't change my mind and I will change my mind. And that seems, if you look at it in context, it seems open to the fact that he will change his mind because the ones where he says, I'm not going to change my mind, seems more to say, I'm unchanging in my promises. Yeah, Brian. I think there's examples in the Bible, like King David, how we were talking about how God said that he was going to kill the son, you know. And David still prayed, and he was like, he prayed, and he was on his knees day and night until the baby actually died. And so I think in David's mind, he still, he believed that his faith could change or could make an impact on, on, on God's decision, whether God still held, held true to what he said or he didn't hold true to what he said. I feel like there's, there's a spiritual like dwelling with decision making that has to do with like like how we act is how God can react to how we are like how the example of your faith has made you well maybe that wasn't God's mind going I'm going to heal this person today and maybe he didn't even have that in his mind but what he saw was this person's faith and how they believe then God acted upon that and upon their faith okay I by the way I agree with that because we're going in that direction. Do you have a comment? I kind of have a question, um, just because it's going back and forth. The idea then, if you you can't change God's mind, and what's the point of praying? Why are they? Why are those linked together? Like, is that you know the reason that people think there is to pray is to change God's mind? Because I don't think they should be linked. You're right that they shouldn't be linked because there may be other reasons to pray other than to change God's mind. But the way the question is asked by skeptics, former Christians, people in this room. It presumes that the aching of our heart in asking the question is, I want to know if there's a point at all. So yeah, it could be a little bit of a question that's improperly stated because we're going to do the same thing with the next question. But yeah, the, the assumption in the question is that if God won't change his mind, then there's no reason to pray. I think that even if God didn't change his mind, 
there probably is a reason to pray. Phil? Well, just in response to that a little bit, I agree with you like, that prayers come from multiple ideas, but if, if our prayers affect the world, like actually the world, and not like just my own personal viewpoint on something, but affect actions, like I pray for someone to be healed and they're healed, or one way or the other, if it doesn't have that power, then I wouldn't pray for things to happen. Like, I would pray for other reasons, maybe be thankful and like, yada yada, but like, I wouldn't pray for things to happen if I didn't think they would happen at all, ever. Okay, yeah. Okay, maybe I'll look at it a different way. Why would I want to change God's mind? Because obviously He knows so much more than I do, and even though I think I know a lot, I know I don't in comparison. So maybe if me thinking I'm praying, changing something, affects something else, like, I don't know. It's just. But that false humility and piety that we have is not shown in the Bible anywhere. Moses wrestles with God over the destruction of the Israelites. I mean, he could have just said, you're right, you're God, and I'm just the guy that you picked to walk through the desert and lead these idiots through it. Why would I think that I know better than you? Just go ahead, blot them out. He doesn't do that. There's over and over we see this that in our mind we think, yeah, who would I be that I would argue with God? Yet people argue all the time. If it was your child like it was David's child. I mean, would you look at your son and say, he's dying, he's struck ill, and I know the Lord has caused this because he's punishing me. Ah, but why should I change God's mind? Just let him die. I mean, none of us would do that. But it's not about looking at it like that. I can guarantee you I've had moments where like, I haven't wanted people to die, but I can see now where they've led to. And even though it sucks at that moment, I can see the bigger picture now. Not like I could see it then. That's all I'm saying. It's just like he has a much better view and perspective. doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to question. doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to ask them. But in the long run... Okay, but let me answer this, and I'm, I'm, it's not the answer now. I just want you to put a place mark here, like a bookmark. What if God wants you to wrestle with them anyway? What if it's not you saying, well, who am I to change your will? You're the infinite. You're the glorious. What if God's saying, that doesn't matter. I want you to wrestle with me. What if that's the answer that ultimately comes out? Because, by the way, that is also found through Scripture. Yeah. What if, uh, I guess this would fall into the category that you can change God's mind, but what if there are specific things that you can't change his mind about? What if he's going to strike this person dead and there's no, there's no negotiating, and then at other times, you know, there is negotiating about it, and then you can, you can pray for it. Since you don't know which is which, you're better off praying for everything. I totally agree with what you said, because the, there are times I believe he'll change his mind, there are times I believe he won't. I know for sure we will not know, because we cannot know the mind of God. And so that leads us to the point of, let's pray anyway. Why do I say that? Let me move forward and show you where I get some of that from. Let's look at this question about if God is sovereign, what good will it do to even pray? Some of you are still struggling. I mean, it's, it's another way to look at this question. And let, let me take a time out now and say, we're not going to take a huge dive into free will right now. All right? And like if Philip and I spent an hour on this on Wednesday, you know, I want to, I, if, if, if we're going to touch free will, it's like taking a rock and skimming it across the water. It's going to kind of touch a few times and just go off somewhere, okay? We can't dive into that thing. We'll be here all night. But let me show you a couple things that this question came up too. If God is sovereign, then what good will it do to pray? You're not the first people to ask about this. Look at Origen, who said a lot of goofy things, but I just want to show that in recorded in our early writings as a church, all the way back to the third century, Origen asked these questions. He said, first, if God foreknows what will come to be, and if it must happen, then prayer is in vain. So you're not the first to think about these things. Second, if everything happens according to God's will, and if what he wills is fixed, 
and none of the things he wills can be changed, then prayer is in vain. So he struggled with this, and like I said, he did some goofy things, like he castrated himself because he thought that that was the best way to avoid lust. So, you know, he's he a little extreme on some stuff, you know? <laughs> there were a couple doctrines he came up with later that the church kind of disavowed, you know, and just said, no. We'd probably all vote for that one. <laughs> it's one of the ones you say, no. But I just want to point out something about that. Look at all the assumptions you've got to put into this thing for prayer to be in vain. Like, there's a lot of ifs in his statements. If this, if this, if this, if this, then it's in vain. And some of those we have to at least look at. We're not going to do tonight. But I just want to show you that we're not the first to think about these things, about his sovereignty and why even pray. But let me just make some observations again. Just some quick observations. First, I don't see anywhere in the Bible that it says, don't pray because I'm sovereign. In fact, whether you believe in God's sovereignty, whether you believe there's a lot of free will, it almost doesn't matter because the Bible is clear about one thing, we should pray. Even in the Lord's Prayer, as I point out here, that God invites us to pray even as we pray, thy will be done. So if you interpret thy will be done in an absolute sovereignty way, even if you're a fatalist, believe that God's just going to make everything happen, he's still instructing us to pray thy will be done, but we're supposed to pray. So maybe it's irrelevant. I believe God withdraws his sovereignty to allow us to exercise our free will. It doesn't matter if you believe that or not. I'm just saying that's an observation that I see him doing sometime where he intentionally allows for freedom to take place. But prayer is its partner. So I believe he does that sometimes. But other times, God intervenes in a natural order. Like we see this in scripture, the plagues and miracles. He even intervenes sometimes in the course of things to restrict free will. Like the famous one that every single person will cite back to you. Like, what about when he hardened Pharaoh's heart? The one that I see all the time is Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, and he ran the other way, and God's like, oh, no, you don't. And grabs him and makes him go anyway. Say, like, how's that free will? Well, he intervenes in the natural order to make certain things happen. I see them both. It's like the changing his mind. Does he change? Yes. Does he not change sometimes? Yes. Can we ever know the difference? No. He allows free will. He intervenes at the natural order. We have examples in scripture of both. Side by side. Do you know at the time which one it's going to be? No. But the constant is, he tells us to pray, even as we say the words, thy will be done. Jesus, as I said, seemed to know the will of the Father. There is debate. Did Jesus have knowledge of everything? Did he, did he, again, we don't have to go into that debate. But we know from recorded in the Gospels that he did at times indicate that he knew what was going to happen and yet he still prayed. And we don't know what's going to happen. So we should pray all the more. So a way to look at this is if you're stuck on, if God's sovereign, I don't even know why I should pray. I know it sounds like a bad answer because Scripture just says to pray anyway. But we can see the reasons why. We can still pray no matter what we believe about God's sovereignty or free will because there's still this element and a commandment and an expectation to pray. Jeremy. The, the command here or the, the, like the, the emphasis that Jesus or that God seems to place on prayer I think is a relational difference. It's not about, you don't have to have a theological perspective on prayer. It's a relational aspect. And so it doesn't, it doesn't matter 
whether you think this or think that, or, think, or whether you try and prove from whatever systematic theologian you believe in, none of that matters because this is like a different category. It's, it's, it's a different category altogether. Here's why I disagree with you about that it doesn't matter. I agree with everything you said except the it doesn't matter, and here's why. You're, you're asking the wrong person. What I'm saying is you have to ask the thousands and thousands of people who sit in churches who won't pray or have trouble praying or don't understand prayer because of that question. The reason I say it does matter is because we all, I believe, created our own crazy theologies about prayer. We spread them throughout the church. If we sat down and walked through them all, we would probably deconstruct most of them and say, the question doesn't make sense, or that's not even true, or it's based on a false assumption, or it's not logical, or it's not supported in Scripture. But we don't do that. I mean, we being people in church don't do that. They walk around, and if you ask people in churches today, is God sovereign? 90% of them is checked, yes, true. Don't know what it means. But it comes with a baggage that goes with it, like, oh, I think what it means is he controls every detail, or I think what it means is nothing can be outside of his will. If you asked them to go further and write an essay on what that meant, they probably couldn't do it. But they've been burdened with it. So now when they come to pray, when we come to pray, we're asking this question. It's a bad question. But what we did was we didn't go to a book and say, hey, let's pick some good questions about prayer. What we did is we just took questions that people have that say, here's what I want to know about prayer. And so they don't pray. They've loaded this question up with so much meaning that twists them up and prevents them from being free to say, it doesn't matter. So I think, in a way, I agree with almost everything you said, except that there's no importance to the question itself, because it's the very question that's preventing people from praying. I'm, I'm definitely not saying it doesn't matter, and it's not something we should talk I'm just saying it doesn't, whether or not you think this or that way doesn't matter in my own kind of view of that, that's all. Okay, and my statement to everybody who believes that is good. However... How many hours are we really praying? How much time are we spending in prayer? Because some of us will look at this and go, I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Or that's not something that I'm worried about. It's like, okay. That's why we have 75 questions. But the real issue is not, does this bother you? The real issue is, are you praying? Like if we sit in here with all our theoretical ideas and go like, oh, I'm totally okay with that. That's such a silly question. Sure. You don't have an issue with it. I don't have an issue with it. How many hours am I praying a week? Okay, maybe it's not hours, right? Maybe you're going to tell me it's not quantity, it's quality. I mean, look, my prayer life sucks. I'll just be open. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. My prayer life sucks. I'm trying to make it better. I'm trying to follow a lot of disciplines as we did our discipline series. But I can stand up here all day long and tell you what's right or wrong with all these questions. In the end, it's like, okay, good. How are we doing in actually praying? Not just because it's commanded. Like last week we said, saying to people, you should pray just because the Bible said so. It's kind of like when somebody asks a really interesting question about the faith, and you just say, just have faith. I mean, it might actually be the, an answer, but they're probably going to be joining the bloggers I read on xchristian.net. I think we have better answers than that. That's all I'm saying. Anyone else before we move on? Here's some conclusions. I, I, I don't mean them as conclusions like these are the answers. Statements about God not changing his mind are most made to describe his promises in his word, like I am unchanging. My word is unchanging. My promises do not fail. It appears that at times, and I should have underlined at times, God has moved through to, by our prayers. But other times, he won't change his will. And I put that in quotes 
Because as Jeremy has pointed out, we'll never really know what it is until after the fact, if ever. But at least it leaves the door open. And finally, since we're bound by time and we can't know the difference, we might as well just pray. Because it's also commanded. And it's expected. And Jesus modeled it. There's a lot of reasons why that answer actually starts to make sense. Ryan, you want to comment? Well, I was just saying, it's not an uncommon question. I think the disciples themselves asked the same question, like, how do we pray? You know, and then I think that's when Jesus obviously gave them all of the prayer. But, I mean, it's something that we're going to continually struggle with, you know. Okay. Let me read you a quote from Karl Barth. By the way, the reason I picked this quote is because Karl Barth was a, a theologian who actually believed in, in, he had a high view of God's sovereignty. He wasn't somebody who just thought, ah, I don't really know. He's certainly not in the camp that God is surprised by everything that happens. He had a pretty high view of God's sovereignty, and yet this is what he said. He's not deaf. He listens. More than that, he acts. He does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's actions, even upon his existence. This is what the word answer means. The fact that God yields to man's petition, changing his intention in response to man's prayers, is not a sign of weakness. He himself in the glory of his majesty and power has so willed it. I struggled with this quote for a long time. I almost felt like Karl Barth is giving too much emphasis on our ability to change God. But it just struck me as somebody who had always thought had a high view of God's sovereignty made so much room for God changing his mind and even defining it as the answer to prayer means that God has changed his mind to allow something to happen. Just a thought. I don't even think I totally agree with this quote. Yeah. I know this is slightly off of the focus. Uh, what I'm struggling with is that the idea of whether God changes his mind or not, or all word it differently. Whether God says he will do something or says something will happen, and then it doesn't end up happening, or he ends up doing something different. Um, I feel like that's a huge question, a huge issue that like, can't just be ignored, because... If that means some things God says we can't rely on actually happening, and some things we can, like how? And I brought this up earlier. Like, how do we know? Like, how do we know anything He says will actually happen? Because some of the things He said will happen didn't. Okay, Mike. Um, it seemed very appropriate that you quoted Karl Marx to me, because he, more than any other 20th century theologian, had a very strong doctrine of revelation. And it seems to me, this is revealing my bias, that's what I work on at uh, Claremont, is the doctrine of revelation. And it seems to me like a crucial difference between if there are two perspectives being advanced here, one that we can know, one that we can't know, the crucial difference seems to be the, the doctrine of revelation. Those who hold strong doctrine, whether it's found in scripture or in Christ or the tradition or whatever, um, will be more convinced that we can know whether prayer works, whether you know how it works, um, whether we can actually know stuff about God. Those who hold a weak doctrine of revelation, I may be reading your position wrong here, but it would seem to me if you have a weak doctrine of revelation, you'd be more agnostic about some of those things. Is that accurate? Have I? I, I probably would have the weakest uh, position. Okay. <laughs> Inerrancy, revelation, none of that. We need to put Jeremy in a special chair, like over here, and like, just so that he's not confused with the rest of the group. I'm I'm glad you mentioned Barb because how strong your doctrine of revelation is will directly relate, is directly proportionate to how much of a problem you think these things are. Okay. By the way, Philip, I think even if God does change His mind, which I think He does, that's my bias. 
It doesn't mean he changes his nature. So there's a limit even to the question that you asked first. We've got to bring it in. Like, it's not at the margins. We've got to bring it in. Then within that, there may be a very interesting question about, you know, if, if I pray one way and then, you know, like, let's say you have two football teams praying in the locker room before a game and one's like, God, let us win. Like, no, let us win. Like, let us win. Like, you know, I mean, we could go through those kinds of scenarios. And I, I think that one we will take offline because I think it is kind of, there is something to it, but I don't believe that the evidences we see in Scripture are going to be normative for us. A lot of those times when he was saying one thing is in times when he was having direct conversations with people, and I would describe them more as wrestling with them and partnering with them to bring about a result. So I'll, I'll explain more about that when we talk about it, but that's what I think is going on, and that's ultimately going to be a lot of my bias about what prayer really ultimately ends up being. Okay? Let me move on to answer this other question briefly. It's not as long. Why pray if God already knows all of your needs? This one, like Ashley pointed out, I first start off by saying the question assumes that prayer is to make known our needs, that the purpose of prayer is to do that. So if you're one of these people who's asked, like, why would I pray if God already knows my needs? Well, the first thing I'd say is I don't think that's the purpose of prayer. Why? Because Jesus himself said it. He said, the Father already knows our needs. So we have it in Matthew 6.32. He's saying, like, your Father in heaven already knows that you need these things. He knows what you need. But isn't that all the more reason to pray? I mean, Jesus never said, your Father in heaven knows what you need, so just don't even bring it for him. In fact, his model of prayer, again, the Lord's Prayer, is the opposite. Look at all the things that in the Lord's Prayer, after we do the other priorities... Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we get to like our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. All of which appear to be needs. So Jesus can't be instructing us, God already knows your needs, so don't pray about your needs. He's actually dedicating quite a part of his model prayer to our needs. Maybe another way to look at it is to say, you don't have to bother with the Lord like trying to tell him the whole story. He already knows. But you could start right where you really need to be. Philip. And obviously we're supposed to pray for our needs, but why? Like, what purpose is that serving? Like I said, like, should we, and the reason why I'm asking is not just like an academic thing. Like, well, is it purposeful in any way to be like giving God all of the details to make sure he fully understands the situation and like exactly what you want or can you get to like God just pray about everything I need and that'd be okay but pause just pause for a second because I'm going to actually answer it Randy I think we, we're supposed to still pray for our needs so he, like it's our way of showing them where our priorities are really at like I mean if you take the time out of your day like David did to sit there and pray day and night for something it shows your heart's really there same thing with Moses, like, you know, like, was testing him, basically, like, he could have started all over with him, but, like, that's basically saying, are you going to be selfish and want to start everything from you, are you really going to care about these people enough to where you want to save them and go ahead and lead them? Yeah, and by the way, to save them, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Again, put 40 in quotes, like, we've had that debate, but, but, but he was, he, he's, he just lay in front of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, arguing the case of the Israelites. Jeremy. Isn't it more theologically troubling that you think God already knows your needs and people pray for that and he doesn't give it to them? Then I'm praying for food, but I didn't give, or God didn't give me, so I died. Thank you for bringing it up. 
We are not going into the problem of suffering and evil. That's a totally different series, and we're not going there. Just like we're not going into free will and sovereignty, we're going to like skim across the service and not go there. Let me drive to Philip's point real fast. Jesus invited persistent, insistent prayer, despite the fact that God knows our needs. The two examples in Scripture that we have, one is where the guy goes to his neighbor and knocks on the door, the parable that Jesus told, because he had a midnight visitor come to him and he needed to get food from his neighbor. Very important thing in the Middle East to be able to provide food for your guests. He doesn't have any. He runs next door. The guy next door has locked the door for the night and won't open up. And Jesus says, just as he continues to knock on the door, he keeps knocking. The person in the house will get up and open the door for him because of his persistent and his insistent knocking. That's the model of prayer. Where does that model come from that he gives us? Right after the Lord's Prayer in Luke. If you look at Luke 11, 5-13, which I won't read for time's sake, Jesus just finished giving the version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke, and then he goes right into this parable of someone knocking on the door insistently. And Jesus is saying, pray like this. Just keep knocking. The other example he gives in Luke 18, 1-8, we've talked about before, the widow who goes to the judge, the unrighteous judge, who keeps bothering the judge over and over and over and over for justice. And Jesus comments on his parable, if even this unrighteous judge will give justice because she bugs him, you should do the same thing. He commends us to pray persistently, insistently, to not give up and to be insistent about it at the same time. So there's a reason that we should pray, even if he already knows our needs. Clearly, the judge knew what the widow wanted. Clearly, the guy inside knows what the neighbor wants. And Jesus is saying, doesn't matter. Just keep doing it. Does that mean that God will relent? No. He could. It's not a formula. Like, if you knock for 30 days, God will give you what you want. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is, whether God changes his mind Whether his sovereignty allows for free will, we're to pray. And we're to pray a certain way. Even when Jesus says, the Father knows your needs, he goes on right away to say, pray like this, anyway. Philip's question. Here's what Philip Yancey says. Looking at this issue of God knowing our needs. Here's his quote. Why pray? Evidently, God likes to be asked. God certainly does not need our wisdom or our knowledge nor even the information contained in our prayers. But by inviting us into partnership of creation, God also invites us into relationship. Now, I know I'm throwing out terms that we haven't really talked about yet. What is this partnership we have with God? We're going to get there, so just remember this phrase I'm putting up here early. He makes another example. Philip Yancey says, Consider again the act of repentance. Confessing my sins before God communicates something God already knows. Yet somehow the act of confession binds the relationship and allows a closeness that could not otherwise exist. I think the reason he wants us to pray is for some reason he wants this conversation to go on. This word evidently that Philip Yancey uses, he spent three or four chapters developing this theme, by the way. So when he gets to this conclusion, that word carried out a lot of weight to somebody who's read along the book when he says evidently. Because you can replace that with, as I've shown in evidence throughout all these chapters I've been writing, God likes to be asked. And he's given example after example of people doing this kind of 
relationship, this wrestling, this partnership with God that for some reason he invites us into. So, where do we come out? I don't think we're ever going to have a solid answer. We're certainly not going to know, even if God does change his mind, which I believe he does, what his mind is and what he'll change it to. We don't know if you believe that he leaves room for free will, when he's going to allow that and when he's not. We don't know when he's going to intervene and change the natural order of things or cause a miracle and when he's just going to allow things to take their natural course. We don't know why he wants to keep hearing from us except that he says that he does. We certainly don't know if we just bug him long enough whether he'll relent because he doesn't even guarantee us that. What we do know is that despite all of those things, he pushes us to pray for our needs, to pray and to wrestle with him, and to pray also in a way that we come before him and partner with him about what's going on. That's where I'm going to leave it tonight. Let's close up and pray tonight. Thank you for all the comments you guys brought in. They're shaping our discussion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit because it's in this room. God, you're ever-present. You're described as holding all things together. And your Holy Spirit speaks through us. It prompts us, Lord. Thank you for all the comments that were made tonight. Thank you for the wrestling, as honest as it is, that goes on in this room. Thank you that we are becoming better at understanding you. Thank you that we're doing away with elementary ideas about who you are. But Lord, all that doesn't mean anything if we don't lay before you and petition you and pray. So Spirit that speaks for us when we don't know how to pray. Tonight, Lord, we ask that you would give us a heart for prayer, not just a mind that understands the difficulties of prayer, that you would bring us to a place where we want, with all of our being, to be like Jesus, have a heart that wants to spend time alone with you, Father. We pray that as our highest prayer, that we might be found to be people who are in love with this relationship with the Father to the point that we want to spend all of our time in prayer. Pray this in your name. Amen.